Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Presidents Putin and Xi are to meet in Uzbekistan as Russia-China ties blossom. Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin are expected to meet at a summit in Uzbekistan next week as part of the Chinese ruler's first overseas visit since the pandemic. Contrary to reports of China turning its back on the relationship, it looks like the relationship is going fairly well. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J. No, as always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So not only will this be uh, the first trip for President Xi since uh, the pandemic, it's also going to be their first face-to-face meeting since uh, uh, Russia has uh, intervened in Ukraine. And what do you see uh, coming out of, of the what, what do you what does this demonstrate to you, KJ No? Well, it's a very clear demonstration of stronger ties and that they're uh, you know willing and able to show that in a public forum. And so, the consensus that they had spoken about, the upgraded cooperation between the two countries in agriculture, energy investment, environmental protection, etc., as well as, you know, simply the fact that they are uh, conducting military exercises together, most recently the Vostok 2022 uh, held in the Sea of Japan. I think this is simply more affirmation that the multipolar world is becoming more and more consolidated and more and more prominent. And and, and I also think that, uh, you know, to follow up on what you said a little bit, it shows the how broad the relationship is. And and I think it's intentional. I think that it's okay. We're having military exercises now. Now, this is in August or whatever, September. Now on the 15th and 16th, we're now going to have economic exercises. And everybody knows right now um, that uh, Russia is a very powerful military. They have a military strength. China has a very, very powerful economic strength. And I'm not saying they don't have a powerful military strength, but Russia's you know, military strength and possession of its commodities are really its, its biggest leverage on the world. But I think it's, they're also showing we are cooperating in a number of areas. And when you read this, they're getting together to plan for the SCO. And I think it's also showing they see they see themselves as the leaders for arranging this new order. Absolutely. And key uh, in that uh, new order is the uh, de-dollarization of the global economy. And you can see, once again, progressive but continuous steps uh, towards, uh, you know, the de-dollarization. What we see most recently is the fact that uh, China and uh, Russia are exchanging uh, oil uh, for yuan and ruble, um, a gas for yuan and ruble. And I think, you know, that each step undermines the foundation of 
uh, U.S. Uh, soft power and U.S. hard power. Each one of these actions, in particular in the economic sphere, in particular to the extent that the U.S. as the global reserve currency is undermined, means that sanctions cannot be used in this indiscriminate way and that countries are essentially decoupling from the Western orbit. Here's what I think is a perfect example of the narrative that the Washington Post has uh, been contracted or conscripted uh, to promote. While Beijing insists that it supports peace, it has not condemned Russia's actions in Ukraine and has blamed the United States and NATO for causing the crisis by inflaming what Chinese officials say are Russia's, quote, legitimate security concerns, end quote. Well, I would venture to guess Beijing does support peace since it hasn't invaded anybody in a, in a, in a number of decades. And saying that the United States and NATO are responsible for what's happening in Ukraine is accurate. And that if you don't think encircling Russia by NATO, with NATO forces and missiles isn't a legitimate security concern and cutting Russia's response time from what nine minutes or 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 eleven minutes down to seven minutes or six minutes isn't a legitimate security concern. I would have to submit that the Washington Post has no clue what it's talking about. KJ, no. Well, I think they do know what they're talking about. They're just being dishonest, or they're regurgitating oh, okay. okay. the propaganda <laughs> that they. And, you know, perhaps they, you know, believe the, their own uh, propaganda after a while. You know, they're, as we said, as we said before, you know, getting high on their own supply. But you're absolutely correct. You know, uh, from Russia's standpoint, this was a strategically defensive maneuver. It was tactically offensive, but strategically defensive because uh, coming right up to uh, Russia's border means that all the strategic debts has been removed. And with, you know, the end of the INF uh, treaty uh, and this continuous uh, U.S., uh, you know, mission, you know, to uh, undermine and to dismember uh, Russia and to, you know, reclaim the Eurasian uh, continent through the pivot. These are key factors uh, that led to, you know, Russia deciding that, oops, you know, you know, this is the bright red line. You know, this is where we have to make a stand. And so I think that um, moving forward, uh, the key understanding that the world has to come to is that security has to be a mutual venture. You cannot get your security at the cost of another's country. And I think that uh, this uh, multipolar system, which China and Russia are in favor of, has put in good measures and good policies and good approaches towards understanding what is mutual and sustainable security, which actually was part of the understanding of the European Union until the U.S. decided that it was going to override everything for its own interest. Interesting article in the South China Morning Post. Europe is losing the narrative battle to Russia-China anti-Western message. Beijing and Moscow suspected of combining to echo messaging on Ukraine, Taiwan, another global crisis. EU Foreign Affairs Chief, Chief Joseph Borrell says Russia's efforts to blame food crisis and inflation on Western sanctions are succeeding. And when you look at this, 
it's obvious that the West is only about the narrative. China has industry. Russia has commodities. The West has derivatives and asset-backed security. That's the effectively a narrative. Re- realistically, those kinds of things are a narrative that even the people selling them don't know what the heck they mean. So we're looking at, they're talking about the only thing that matters to them is a narrative, and Russia and China are going on about the business of doing concrete things in the physical world to better themselves. Your thoughts? You're absolutely correct. You know, for a generation... The, the, the smartest minds in math and physics, in high energy physics and theoretical physics, went into the financialized markets where they did similar work. They created high value vertic- virtual particles uh, of value that, that, are, that, that, are, that, that are non-existent. And the West has built, it's financialized its economy to the max, and as opposed to, as you point out, China and Russia and the rest of the global south that still have industrial economies that produce, uh, uh, you know, produce uh, usable products. And so uh, one of the ways in which the West has dominated the world, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the post-Soviet era has been to control the narrative that is uh, we're talking about you know the financial control of the world along with the control of the narratives that uh, form uh, people's worldviews uh, we're talking about you know Hollywood we're talking about the you know the social media companies we're talking about uh, PR firms etc and it's this belief that they have these foundational strengths in PR, propaganda, messaging, and control of the finance, which leads the West to think that it can continue to control the world against the bare, solid facts of, uh, you know, industrial and material need. That narrative is breaking down, in particular, because of this war in the Ukraine. And there we see that you cannot eat derivatives, that you have to, uh, that Food and fuel are physical things that are necessary. And, and because of that, you know, the narrative that upheld uh, this, uh, you know, virtual world of illusion is also crumbling. Burrell writes, uh, Burrell's, I'm sorry, the South China Morning Post writes, Burrell's argument was not new. Since coming to office in 2019, he's been warning about Europe's inability to sell itself to other parts of the world as effectively as autocratic states like China and Russia. Well, here's an example, I believe, of China selling itself. That is, Chinese-built bridge opens to traffic in southern Bangladesh. The eighth Bangladesh-China friendship bridge has opened to traffic in southern Bangladesh. That bridge is tangible. That bridge is real. That bridge helps to foster economic development in Bangladesh because it goes across this river that enables, of course, now uh, transportation to be facilitated. And the prime minister of Bangladesh says she is grateful to China for the financial and technical assistance. What I'm saying here is this 
is tangible benefit. This isn't ideology. This isn't narrative. This isn't uh, Tony Blinken in Africa telling African countries about sovereignty when the U.S. has backed six coups in the last 18 months. Yes, you know, this is absolutely correct. These are tangible assets, tangible infrastructure that uh, the people of these countries are benefiting from. And as opposed to that, you know, what is uh, what is the West offering? I mean, let's say a U.S. top official like Blinken arrives in a former Western colony and he lands in a state-of-the-art airport built by China. He drives on a six-lane highway built by China and he addresses the leadership or the legislature in a magnificent building built by China. And then he's going to deliver a scolding lecture to these leaders about the threat that China poses to them and that they have to choose between authoritarianism and democracy. These people are being laughed, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. out of the house. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, exactly. Bangladesh knows which side uh, to take and what benefits it. And it is making the right pragmatic, rational choice. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden will not declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. U.S. President Joe Biden has made a final decision against designating Russia as a state sponsor of terror, according to White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre. Does this indicate anything about the U.S. position going forward? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in the Ukraine and Russia, Professor Nikolai Petro. As always, sir, welcome back. Nice to be with you again. On Monday, the president said Russia should not be designated a state sponsor of terrorism. And that's a label that Ukraine has been pushing for amid or during the ongoing military intervention. Professor Petro, the the optimist in me says that the president has taken this position since he knows that the U.S. will have to eventually negotiate an end to this And making such a designation makes the inevitable that much more difficult to do. That's what the optimist in me says. How practical am I in my optimism, Professor Nikolai Petro? Well, the cynic in me says (laughs) you should squash that optimism. (laughs) But there, some of what you say has the ring of truth because it seems inevitable. In other words, every conflict ends in some sort of negotiation, Mm -hmm. which does not, however, always 
end the conflict, one of the things I'm going to have to tell my students this semester is that um, negotiations don't necessarily end conflict. Sometimes they postpone conflicts that then resume because the issues that were supposed to have been taken care of were in fact uh, overlooked or ignored or Mm -hmm. not dealt with to the satisfaction of all sides. So in this case, I don't read very much into this. The designation of uh, a country as a state sponsor of terrorism um, is always more or less, uh, to my mind, a rhetorical flourish. It satisfies the people who are least relevant to an actual resolution of conflict, which is our domestic constituents. Mm-hmm. In other words, the people who have, whatever, for whatever reason, uh, want to push uh, one particular view rather than the resolution of a conflict. The resolution of, of a conflict, however, has to be negotiated with outside parties who really see there's, there's nothing uh, at all of interest to them. Uh, in how we designate them or what we call them. They are who they are and uh, will continue to be those things, uh, regardless of what we label them. You know, and I tend to think like this, that there is a practical reason for that. And here's what I mean. There are certain um, commodities. I've been looking at it lately. Uranium. The U.S. doesn't have a replacement for that um, fertilizer. So as even as the Biden administration says, oh, they must be cut off in Europe, you've got to cut off, cut them off for everything. There's a few commodities that the U.S. is still buying very quietly from Russia and yeah, aluminum and um, to label them a state sponsor of terrorism would then stop Biden administration from being able to do that and could, let's be honest, could cause some real problems just leading up to the um, midterms. And I think there's a political and practical reality there also. What do you think? Yes. And there's actually quite a lot of trade going on. Um uh, so Putin gave an important speech um, earlier this week at the Far East Economic Forum, and he provided some interesting data. For example, shipping tonnage for the first seven months of this year has essentially remained the same um, uh, from uh, a year ago last, uh, well, since from the first seven months of last year. So uh, Russia has lost certain markets, but gained other markets. And the disconnect uh, in the global marketplace has actually benefited Russia indirectly because it has forced uh, suppliers to, to vie with each other for these commodities that only Russia can offer and to essentially raise prices on <laughs> raise prices on all of them, uh, which redounds ultimately to um, to Russia's commercial benefit. So what we're seeing, and Putin describes this in his in his speech, is a shift in 
the global economic balance of power from Russia investing and essentially subsidizing the industries of Western Europe by providing it cheap and convenient gas, oil, and natural resources. Europe, however, turning that offer down because of its disagreement with Russia's foreign policy, and Russia's essentially then shifting to other markets that uh, also want uh, or that are willing to step in and replace Europe and uh, uh, and that don't uh, provide the same problems to Russia in terms of judging its foreign policy. The benefit of Russia's subsidy is therefore going to countries like India, India Iran, and China, and, uh, and the rest of Asia. TASS reports Russia ready to turn on Nord Stream 2, according to President Putin. Uh, they're ready to start pumping gas through Nord Stream 2. President Putin said this uh, earlier today at the Eastern Economic Forum. And I find it interesting that a couple weeks ago, former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder said, I have a solution to all of this. Turn on Nord Stream 2. And I was saying to Garland earlier today, you know, I didn't even see that as being an objective, you know, in terms of how gas delivery has been slowed down, gas from Nord Stream 1 is now virtually canceled, that turning on Nord Stream 2 could actually be part of the end game or the objective in a lot of this. Your thoughts? Well, yes. And um, a lot of this is positioning for achieving uh some broader geostrategic victories and objectives that will allow Russia to say, um, vis-a-vis the West, you see, we forced them to do what we wanted. And of course, that's the function of sanctions also mm-hmm. against Russia, is to have for the Western powers to crow, look, we made them do uh, what we wanted. And it's, it's this kind of uh, tit-for-tat that, that we're wit- witnessing with the gas pipelines. So Russia has suspended its supplies through Nord Stream 1, the old pipeline, um, because ostensibly of um, failures uh, and uh, dangerous leakages in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. But, But Europe still needs desperately that gas, both for home consumption and to maintain a, a, a competitive uh, in industry. Um, and uh, that's when the fact that Nord Stream 2 has been de facto completed and is ready to come online becomes an interesting card to play. But having done so, of course, all of the history that the United States has in opposing the uh, the initiation and functioning of, of Nord Stream 2 becomes uh, an issue of, uh, as the Chinese say, uh, of, of losing face uh, of the United States to Russia and makes it difficult to, uh, a difficult pill to swallow uh, for specifically the United States. If Nord Stream 2 does get turned up eventually, 
say, in October because the winter is bad and Europe needs gas, beyond the practical realities of turning on the pipeline and delivering gas, when we look at the, the what type of damage does that do to the relationships, say, between Germany and the United States, France and the United States, those European countries that need that gas but have been following the United States down this very, very cold rabbit hole that they're finding themselves involved in? What does it do to the relationships? Well, it uh, creates, um, I would say it doesn't create, it highlights the existence of vastly different geostrategic interests between Europe and the United States. And uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of people have talked about since uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, since 1991, is Russia is geographically Europe's neighbor whereas the United States is an ocean away. So ultimately, any long-thinking European leader must ask uh, him or herself, where do my country's interests truly lie? Do they lie with a global superpower, which occasionally has interests in Europe, Uh, but uh, has other bigger fish to fry, particularly now in Asia with the rise of China, how secure is America's commitment to Europe? Or is my security and my well-being better defended and more secure by establishing a firmer and warmer relationship with Russia? And that's essentially what Gerhard Schroeder comes comes back to all the time. Um, he has a famous saying from a, a more than a decade ago. He said, we must never forget that um, Russia has a China card to play and Europe does not. Professor Petro, also, how does it affect the relationship if they don't? between the German government and the German people, where there is a, I mean, the possibilities of how bad this could go are, you know, catastrophic, unmentionable, shall we say, (laughs) Uh, Professor Petro. Well, uh, just last week, uh, Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, answered that rather, uh, again, cynically, I would say. She said, um, I have made a commitment to the Ukrainian people to defend them. And even though my uh, voters might disagree with me, I intend to keep that a commitment. Well, I think German, <laughs> that, that <laughs> phrase will not be forgotten in the next electoral campaign in Germany. Mm-hmm. She she has decided she doesn't want her job. And she might want to read up on the French Revolution because people (laughs) will be rational until they run out of food and their children are hungry. And cold. And then they don't want to hear rhetoric anymore. At that point, let's just say bad things can happen, Annalena Baerbach. I I would never want to see bad things happen, but really bad things have happened historically in those types of businesses. Bad things. But Liz Truss, same thing. We, we got about a minute 15. Has, she has said the same thing. You're right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So so your, your thoughts in terms of uh, also because they're projecting a very cold winter. And you can only go out in the forest and, and, and pick up sticks for, for so long. Well, um, 
let's hope it it doesn't come to that. Um, rather than predicting and and looking toward worst case scenarios, let's remember that negotiation allows a lot of off ramps and a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's look at the positive uh, aspects, such as the agreement to ship grain from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, hopefully to serve the needs of uh, the starving populations of the third world, although, as Putin pointed out, only 3% of that grain actually went to the third world. The rest (laughs) appears to have gone to Europe. But nevertheless, it's a promising uh, indication that uh, even uh, when in conflict, nations can come together and uh, do what's best for the world at large. Well, and let's hope in the word, I don't know if Henry Kissinger said it or Madeleine Albright said it, hard times make a monkey eat snowballs. Let's see. <laughs> let's, see <laughs> let's see how this all shakes out. As always, Professor Nikolai Petro, we thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And actually, it was my mother-in-law that said that. Uh, <laughs> there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New York Post reports, foreign nuclear secrets among docs found in Trump raid. In a stunning leak from the Department of Justice, a report on Tuesday disclosed information about top-secret documents that were reportedly among the files seized by FBI agents at Trump's Florida resort. Citing sources, quote, familiar with the search, end quote, the Washington Post said the documents detailed a foreign government's military defenses and nuclear capabilities and can only be viewed by a select group of top officials. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So we have a Washington Post leak that allegedly the FBI found sensitive material related to a foreign country's nukes in Trump's closet. So we've gone from the Washington Post and the New York Times publishing more and more, quote unquote, evidence of Trump being a Russian spy to now, after the FBI lost its bid not to appoint an independent mediator, reviewing the Trump papers, they're leaking this to their handpicked media, trying to win in the court of public opinion. Steve Poikinen. And it's so transparent. It's so obvious that you never get the names of the whistleblowers and all of the documents from major publications with this kind of turnaround, unless it's a purely intentional operation. The the time spent between going to a news agency and then verifying any of this stuff is normally anywhere from months to a couple of years. Most cases, you have to sue the government through Freedom of Information Act in order to obtain half of the stuff you're going for anyway. So to have the kind of turnaround and to have the the very particular set uh, of disclosures 
involved go directly to some of the largest media outlets in the nation. Uh, I find that to be highly, highly suspect. You know what's interesting? And I got to put there's another article we sent you. I got to put it together. FBI agent Timothy Tebow hid intel from whistleblower on Hunter Hunter and the big guy Joe Biden. And I got to put these two together because apparently this guy, Bob Yulinski, who was Hunter Biden's business associate, went to the FBI and spilled the beans said, here's what you need to know. Here's the questions. I'm ready to answer. Yeah, Hunter's up to no good. I think Biden's the big guy. Here's some info. And uh, what are we going to do? And the FBI are like, all right, we'll get right back to you. Never, ever, ever called him back. The guy spilled the beans and they never called him back. And now we find out that a particular FBI agent who was like tweeting that Trump is terrible, et cetera, was behind that. And now we look... Another investigation against Trump and sources or whatever are leaking stuff to the to the Washington Post, et cetera. And it's obvious this is not an unbiased investigation. This is I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm a far lefty. I don't support anything Trump's policies, but I do believe in an unbiased justice system. And clearly the FBI is just an operation out to take out Trump any way they can. And now they're up to it again. Am I wrong there, Steve? Uh, well, there's certainly a, a huge chunk of the FBI that wasn't merely motivated politically, but acted on their their political proclivities and their own political biases or the biases of their superiors in order to withhold evidence in order to lose evidence, in order to lose the number of someone who came in to provide information that everyone had the right to know, especially if it was, what, October 23rd, 2020, a week and a half or so before the election. It seems pretty critical, uh, but this is an FBI that had found itself in almost the exact same position. Four years prior with Hillary Clinton and her email servers and all of the illegality surrounding that, which I know she tries to make a distinction between. And I guess there is one because hers was far more illegal uh, in terms of just the way the law is written, the way she kept the information and destroyed it. Um, But we've got we're we've got. I don't I I mean, it's hard to think of a more openly politically biased version of the FBI, even going back to Hoover. So Bob Alinsky, he spent over five hours secretly being interviewed by the FBI about his knowledge of Biden and his deals with China. He revealed in a press conference that Joe Biden was the big guy due to get a 10 percent cut of a lucrative joint venture with Chinese energy firm CEFC. He gave the FBI the contents of three cell phones containing encrypted messages between Hunter Biden and his business partners, along with emails and financial documents detailing the Biden family's corrupt influence peddling operation when Joe was vice president. But all of this now seems to have fallen into the same black hole as Hunter Biden's laptop. And as we talked about, and I'm glad you brought up Hillary Clinton, because as we talked about last week, the allegation that the laptop that 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 Hillary Clinton's server was hacked, that consumed the media. And so what the content of the server was became irrelevant. And just as now, 
all of this other stuff about the FBI. Tell me what's on the darn laptop. That, that's what I want to know. What's on the laptop? And, but we can't seem to get to that part of the analysis, Steve Poikinen. Well, and that's the game, isn't it? I, they're trying to keep people from finding out just how corrupt their president is, just how corrupt their president's family is, just how corrupt their institutions are. And this is the the ongoing problem with whatever has become of the media, where the intensity is, is on Timothy Tebow and on the FBI, maybe on Chuck Grassley's whistleblowers or whatever. But again, it's incredible that we know the whistleblower's name. I, I can't make that point enough. The, the narrative management operation that's going on with this is solely designed to keep people as distracted as possible and looking as far away from the actual information, which does come down to 10% for the big guy. And just of the Chinese individual who was the other partner on that deal. Uh, also, and, and, and here's the thing. Okay, so you ask yourself, why is it the FBI? You know, I mean, Paul Manafort, there were allegations about Paul Manafort. They searched everything they could about the history of Paul Manafort's finances, and they found something, and they prosecuted him. None of this is happening. And here's an example of why, uh, just a thought. Former director of CIA's counterterrorist center joined Burisma Board. Burisma Group, an independent oil and gas company with operations in Ukraine, announced that Joseph Kofer Black will join the co- former CIA directors are on the board of Burisma with Hunter Biden when, if we're to believe it, some of that loot, and I'm not calling it money, I'm calling it loot, some of that loot, 10% of it, is going to the big guy. When I see that, I'm thinking to myself, I think I understand why the cover-up is there. What your thoughts, Steve? And it, this, it, it's not just, you know, uh, just Coker Black. It's not just Joe Biden. It's not just Hunter Biden. This is still, this is also Nancy Pelosi's son, Paul Pelosi Jr. This is Adam Schiff's up to his neck in it. Uh, a couple of the Romney kids. I can't remember if it's, they're all named after colors of sweaters in the Land's End catalog. I can't remember the name <laughs> off the top of my head. But Romney's kids are involved. Uh, the Ukraine from the Maidan coup on was turned into the virtually Cuba in the cold in terms of how it operated as a casino for America's elite and just sort of a dumping ground for every sort of nefarious project that we wanted to, to there the government wanted to do uh, under the radar. Um, I, I can't, I can't think of it. Well, we have lots of examples, but this is the most current shining example of the failure of the state at every conceivable level and a complicit and compliant media there to, to make sure that these kinds of things continue. So evidence of a compliant media. So how, how do we, how does, how do we break through this wall? Because again, when you look at what uh, T-Bolt has or allegedly has, Three cell phones containing encrypted messages between Hunter and his business partners, along with emails and financial documents detailing the Biden family's corrupt influence peddling. This is in the New York Post. 
which we know is considered in many by many or in many instances to be a glorified a glorified rag, but mm-hmm. they do tend to report a lot of accurate stuff. If you, if it's their enemies, they probably will <laughs> go after them hard. So 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 how do you how do you break through this this information blockade? Uh, I, honestly, the best that you, the really all that we ever get to do is try to make an impact with the people closest around us to it. But we had a conversation with Dr. Pierre Corey on uh, my my show AM Wake Up last week, and he was saying that we're at a point in in our history where data doesn't convince people anymore. You effectively have to get people to understand that whatever investment or however many investments they've made into their particular team aren't working out for them and come to terms with walking away from a bad investment. So whatever financial strategy you would have to talk someone out of a bad investment is the one that needs to be employed in this particular situation. And I'm not sure how to do that, honestly, with something as emotionally attaching as political ideology has become. You know, I felt all along when Donald Trump called um, Zelensky and said, hey, I think uh, the Bidens are up to no good somewhere in uh, in Ukraine. That was like the straw that broke the camel's back because he that one of the the things that you absolutely cannot do in Washington, D.C. is bring attention to the corruption of the ruling elite class. And it, and that's not about politics. That's not about party affiliation. That's about using whether it's Ukraine or Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever for an ATM. And when he did that, that was like, OK, this man's got to pay. Your thoughts? You're, yeah. I, Bernie Madoff only got arrested because he screwed over other rich people. Same with the, the pharma guy, Martin Shkreli. He didn't get in jail for jacking up the price of insulin 700%. He got thrown in jail for screwing over other rich people. It's, what you can't do is snitch on your neighbor, regardless of whether or not you like your neighbor, because you're riding on the same corrupt butt. And that's Donald Trump is used to playing hardball in the New York real estate circle, in the New York business circle, it does call for a lot of snitching and a lot of ratting on your neighbor. It's a totally different game in D.C. because everybody's involved on the grift in the money laundering operation. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. VoiceofEast.com has a piece entitled, Prague Protests, Counterproductive Policies, Not, Quote, Russian Propaganda, End Quote. 
We're responsible. It's by Andrew Koribko. And folks, you've heard Andrew on the show. Phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Uh, He writes, the self-sustaining cycle of socioeconomic and political unrest triggered by European leaders complying with the U.S. demands to promulgate counterproductive policies is expected to continue for the indefinite future. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist and analyst and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, the Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, sir, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Karibko writes, a large-scale protest took place in the Czech capital of Prague Saturday, involving an estimated 70 to 100,000 people who came in mass to peacefully raise maximum awareness of their government's policies that have drastically worsened their living standards over the past half year. Instead of acknowledging their legal dissent despite disagreeing with the causes behind their socioeconomic suffering, the prime minister attempted to discredit the protest by claiming it was called by forces that are pro-Russian. You know, uh, Daniel Lazar, at the end of the day, we can argue about motivations. We can look at the the military-industrial complex. We can look at the United States wanting to control the international uh, gas markets. But at the end of the day, a government is supposed to improve the quality of life of those that are governed. The the fun I say to my students all the time: the fundamental question is, when you're trying to assess a candidate, is your life better off now? than it was yesterday. And Daniel Lazar, these folks are being led to a very cold, dark, hungry future. Daniel Lazar. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course I agree. No, I mean, I mean, a government can ask its people, people to make sacrifices. I mean, that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. But if it does, it's got to explain very clearly why it's necessary. And it's got to put, you know, lay old cards on the table, be absolutely frank about how they how they got in that situation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something they have not done. And the Czech government's reply of blaming these, these, these protests on Russian agents is, you know, just sort of shows the utter bankruptcy of, uh, of their whole policy. Well, it's Putin's, pri- it's Putin's price hike, according to Joe Biden. Of course. Yes, of course, of course. You know, and Putin is blamed for shutting down Nord Stream 1, and, you know, and for trying to open up Nord Stream 2. I mean, none of this makes any sense. And, and there has been no examination, no frank examination, frank and honest examination of how the West got, got in this predicament. But there's no doubt that these sanctions policies are backfiring royally. I mean, Russia is actually benefiting. Uh, oil has come down in price by about a third. In fact, it, it fell several dollars yesterday. But still, their, their, their major commodities are up in price. Their, their ruble is one of the strongest currencies in the world. Uh, there's been no, no dis- discernible economic you know, damage done to Russia itself. And the story in the West is precisely the opposite. I mean, Germany is facing a very serious energy uh, crisis that could really, could really gut German industry. And German industry is like, no, in some ways the leading industrial, Germany is in some ways the leading industrial power in the world. But it's going to take a real hit. And, you know, and and the U.S. is, I I think, is reeling. Its economy is in deep trouble. Um, 
And and it's not all due to the war, but certainly the war has aggravated the distress. So I'm so and the and the and Biden, NATO, the EU, these people have never come clean as to you know as to how this happened. And, you know, there's another interesting article in Global Times where George Galloway talks about um, for Europe, energy shortage is the last straw that will break the camel's back. Break the camel's back is a metaphor. The question is, what does that mean? Does that mean A, that, well, the politicians will finally wise up and say, hey, we better do something to alleviate these people suffering. And uh, that's not happening, Dan. So does break the camel, you know, what does that mean when General General Winter, the great general who's never lost a battle, comes galloping his horse in the next couple months into northern Europe? Um, break the camel's back could mean, and I've been, I mean, and, and, and I've gotten a little heat for this. I am opposed to violence. But, Dan, when people get hungry, their kids don't have food, they don't have a job because it's closed down. I'm just saying, Dan. This could go in a very bad, bad direction, and I wouldn't want to be a leader of a country such as Czechoslovakia when there's 150,000 people surrounding the presidential palace. They're hungry. They're cold. We know what direction this can go in historically. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think break the camel's back can be understood, should be understood both economically and politically. I mean, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to deal a huge blow, these these. these completely misconceived sanctions will wind up dealing a huge blow to the economies of Western Europe and North America, number one. But number two, they're going to be like, have, they're going to be political dynamite. They're going to completely upset uh, the political order in, the, in these areas. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think the, the Germany's traffic light coalition, you know, between the, uh, the, the social Democrats, the Greens and the, uh, and the free Democrats is heading for a fall. I mean, it's, it's unstable to begin with. It doesn't make any sense. It's a, you know, it's a classic, you know, uh, kind of, you know, ill-assorted, you know, you know lash up. Um, but it's, it's, it, to me, it's, it's going to be in very serious trouble. And Annalena Baerbach will pay a huge price <laughs> for, the, for her comments, you know, saying that, you know, the Germans have just got to put up with it because, you know, because the Ukraine war is the only thing that really matters. You know, and the Greens were behind this really crazy policy of shutting down the uh, the, the the nuclear power plants, which uh, which increased their dependence on on uh, on Russian on imported Russian gas, and then they allowed the U.S. to you know to 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 go forward with its campaign to shut Nord Stream two down. You know, so you know, so now now that Nord Stream one is down. Uh, Vladimir Putin, who clearly has a sense of humor, is offering to open up Nord Stream <laughs> 2. But it just, it just goes to show how completely incoherent uh, German government policy and U.S. policy was as well. Uh, hey, Wilmer, mm-hmm. quick, quick, uh, a quick aside. Annalena Baerbach was at a conference called Democracy in Danger. And at that conference, she said, I don't care what the German voters say. (laughs) This is what we're going to do. And I thought, yeah, democracy is in danger when you make those kind of statements. It's dead as a doornail. I I want to read uh, this paragraph 
by uh, Andrew Karibko. Uh, and again, folks, I strongly suggest you take a look at this piece. He says, the European elite were ordered by their American patrons into promulgating counterproductive policies that tanked their economies and provoked political unrest, both consequences of which have absolutely nothing to do with so-called Russian propaganda and everything to do with the U.S. meddling in their sovereign affairs. Had these politicians retained even a semblance of policymaking independence, then they'd have at least countenanced the benefits inherent in acknowledging their people's peacefully expressed and legitimate frustrations, along with possibly scaling back some of these same counterproductive policies for politically self-serving reasons. Final sentence. Instead, these same leaders are clinging to the policies that are responsible for destabilizing their countries by none other than their own hand for reasons that are clearly connected to the debts they owe their American patrons for putting them in power in the first place. Dan Lazar. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, no one in the West is willing to not criticize, but debate NATO. What is NATO for? I mean, NATO is the is the is the organization which essentially precipitated this conflict. If you know, if, if America's you know regional interests had been under threat the way Russia's were due to NATO's you know relentless eastward expansion, the U.S. would have acted decades ago, and it would have made, it would have acted in a way that would have made like you know Vladimir Putin's. You know, special military operations seem like, you know, like a, a mild case of fisticuffs. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and, but, the, but no one is willing to tackle that issue. And it is the central issue. It's what, it's what, it's what uh, subordinates the EU to the U.S. It drags the EU into all kinds of military conflicts halfway around the world. And, uh, you know, such as Afghanistan, what on earth was the EU, was what NATO doing in Afghanistan? And its only purpose seems to be to create conflict, to make, to take otherwise stable situations and destabilize them. So why can't we have that debate? Why can't we open up that question to discussion? Well, Dan, very early in the game, when this first started, I remember you saying at some point, I guess because of pain or whatever, the people in these countries are going to look at their leaders and say, how did this happen? How did we get here? Do you still think with all the propaganda and all that kind of stuff that that question is going to be answered or do you think they'll be able to avoid it? Wait, they're going to ask very practically why is there no bread on the table, and why is my house so cold? I, I think that question is unavoidable. I think it's. I think that they can't duck it forever. I mean, the idea that this war, this war in the Ukraine, is just due to to one supremely evil individual is a fairy tale. An obvious fairy tale. I mean, I, it wouldn't go over on an ordinary five-year-old. Dan, I, I was watching uh, Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell last night, and I think that's what I was watching. He had some guy on there talking about, oh, the relationship between China and Russia is 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 on the outs, and Russia is losing in Ukraine, and Russia is now begging China to send it to send it bombs. I mean, just utter foolishness. 
It, it makes no sense. It just makes no sense. First of all, Russia is not losing in the Ukraine. No. I mean, clearly, this clearly this, this Kyrgyzstan offensive is not going to go well. Uh, the, it, it's 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 already faltering. The Washington Post uh, this morning had a devastating piece, which was that they gained access to a a military hospital and they interviewed wounded soldiers, and the soldiers told them that Russian mil- the Russian artillery is devastating and overwhelming. They can't counter it. What happens, what's happening is their government is putting them, you know, into the line of fire, you know, while Russian, Russian, you know, artillery from miles away rains down shells on them. Uh, it's, it's, it's suicidal. It's, it's completely pointless. And yet that's what, that's what the Ukraine is doing. And the Ukraine is not going to prevail, prevail through such tactics. It'll only wind up, you know, slaughtering its own military. I mean, I, I think that sooner or later the Ukrainian military will actually break and that the uh, Russians will, will start advancing very dramatically. That's, I'm going out on a limb here, but that's what I strongly, strongly suspect. But the point is that the U.S. can't – its policy is leading to to – Combined military and economic disaster and soon political disaster as well. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Standing next to an F-35 jet fighter, Prime Minister Lapid issues warning to Iran, don't test us. On his visit to the Nevatim Air Base, Prime Minister Yair Lapid says, too early to know if nuclear deal has been stopped. If Iran continues to pose threat, he adds, it will discover Israel's long arm and capabilities. Well, what real threats are or is Iran posing? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and a journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir, Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So uh, Lapid, who was on a visit to the Nevatim Air Base in southern Israel, which houses the Israeli Air Force's fleet of advanced F-35 jets, he issued a warning. It, it's still too early to know if they have dis- in, indeed succeeded in stopping the nuclear agreement, but Israel is prepared for every threat in every scenario. Uh, Lapid said this, standing in front of an F-35. So, Robert, I'm trying to understand what threats is he referring to? Because I don't, I don't think that it was that that uh, that it was Iran that flew B-52 bombers 
over Israel. I think it was the United States and Israel that flew B-52 bombers close to Iran. So, I, you know, who it's not it's not uh, Iran that's assassinating journalists. Mm-hmm. It's Israel that's assassinating journalists. So what threats is he talking about? Uh, this is Israel and the United States uh, making self-fulfilling prophecies. They are threatening uh, Iran, saying Iran is a threat to them, which it isn't. But because these two nuclear nations are continually threatening Iran, Iran has to take steps to defend its, its nation. So perhaps it is going to enrich uh, uranium to to be able to make a, a nuclear war, but or, or nuclear a bomb. But there are no. There are no threats. Iran is not threatening anybody. It never has. Uh, Iran assists its its allies throughout the region and will continue to do so. That's what alliances are all about. Countries uh, sign agreements to assist each other, not only in terms of trade, but in defense. And if they're if they're threatened, their allies will come to their assistance. That's one of the things that Iran is doing. And because Israel is very interested in uh, changing the government of Syria, and Iran is assisting the Syrian government in maintaining the government that people voted for, uh, Israel is calling this a threat to, to Israel. It isn't in any way, shape, or form, but that's how Israel is trying to seize the narrative. And it just seems to me as this is part of, um, the, again, the Wolfowitz Doctrine in that Iran is a regional power. And the Wolfowitz Doctrine says that no country should would could be allowed to even grow as a regional power that could threaten the United States' domination over a region. And so now all they're doing is coming up with excuse after excuse that the, let me add this, the sanctions have nothing to do with a nuclear weapon because the CIA has come out and said there's no evidence that Iran is trying to create a nuclear weapon. This is about holding Iran down, keeping Iran down, stopping Iran's um, economic, military rise, etc. Your thoughts? Yes, I agree with that completely. The CIA, as you mentioned, has said that Iran is not working toward a bomb, that their uh, nuclear program is for peaceful purposes. But the people of the United States don't listen to what the CIA says. They listen to what the talking heads say. The talking heads are saying that uh, Iran is a threat. It's a threat to sacred Israel. It's uh, destabilizing the Middle East. This destabilizing the Middle East. It's the United States that invaded uh, Iraq 20 years ago. It's the United States and Israel that are supporting anti-government terrorists in Syria. It's the United States that's supporting the Saudi war against the people of Yemen. It's the United States that's destabilizing the area. It's not Iran. Iran is working to stabilize the area. But these uh, these these idle threats, or there are no threats, but the Israel threatening uh, Iran does not, assist, does not help the situation uh, as far as global peace. It simply helps the United States' geopolitical goals. As you said, there can be no regional power uh, except the United States everywhere, and Iran is growing in, in power throughout that part of the world. And the United States can't let that happen, but uh, whether it can or not, it's happening. Israeli airstrike put Syrian airport out of commission. They launched a missile attack yesterday targeting Syria's Aleppo airport for the second time in a week, putting the airport out of commission. The Syrian government didn't report any casualties, but the transport ministry said that all flights will be diverted to Damascus. 
your thoughts on this latest attack and how this latest attack is evidence of what we just or what we were just talking about mm-hmm. at the top of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, why the international community isn't outraged by this, I don't know, except unless it's just pressure from the United States. But here is a sovereign nation whose airport has been bombed to the point that it is out of service right now. Uh, the Israel bombed the airport in Damascus uh, a while ago, and it was back in service in a couple of weeks following repairs. But why is one nation allowed to get away with bombing the airport of another nation? This wasn't a military uh, installation, which would still be illegal. This was one of the airports in the country. But again, the point is to keep Syria down, uh, eventually overthrow the government and put in some puppet government uh, with the strings controlled by the United States and Israel. And the continued efforts to do that by the United States and Israel have not been successful for years. This war has been going on, this, this, I don't know if it's called a war, but uh, this destabilization, destabilization efforts have been going on by Israel and the United States against Syria for years, but the Syrian government remains strong. Uh, so this, again, is criminal activity that Israel is, is uh, perpetuating and the world community is ignoring it. And at the same time, the United States is occupying the Syrian oil fields and wheat fields. So from one perspective, you've got two nuclear powers, the United States and Israel, saying that Iran, a non-nuclear power, is a threat that they may have to deal with. Illegally occupying another non-nuclear power, which is Syria, stealing their oil, their wheat, their natural resources. Uh, The U.S. is bombing them, yet Syria... And Iran, the non-nuclear powers who are being attacked by the uh, Israel, openly assassinating Iranians on Iranian soil. Mm-hmm. The U.S. openly assassinating Iranian generals in Iraq, yet saying they're a threat to us. Yes, this is this is uh, we're, we're in Orwellian times here. The the perpetrators are suddenly. Cast themselves, or, or have been for some time, cast themselves as the victims, and the victims are seen as the criminals. This is, as you mentioned, two nuclear nations, and the United States has a long history of, of warmongering, of invading countries whose uh, whose governments it disagrees with, and setting up puppet governments that are extremely repressive, but do but dance to the U.S.'s tune. And Israel, which is an apartheid rogue nation, uh, repressing the uh, Palestinian people for decades. And these two nations are saying that they need to deal with Iran because Iran is a threat. The threat is the United States and Israel. It is not Iran. Scores killed as al-Qaeda attacks South Yemen separatists. This is an antiwar.com. Al-Qaeda forces attacked targets in South Yemen's uh, Abiyan province, leading to multiple fights against the southern Transitional Council. At least 20 uh, Southern Transitional Council fighters were reported killed, while all attackers were also claimed slain, which was six al-Qaeda fighters. The attacks saw them ambushing checkpoints set up as anti-terror operations. Robert Fantina. This is, again, the the people of Yemen have been fighting the uh, Saudi government for, for several years now. And the United States, of course, is supporting Saudi, Saudi Arabians with uh, selling them 
billions of dollars of weapons. Yemen is a poor country growing in, in military strength out of need. And here we have a group that attacks an uh, anti-terror checkpoint. So terrorists are attacking anti-terror checkpoints. There's no way that anyone can say these are freedom fighters, these are pro-democracy uh, actors. These are simply terrorists with support from the United States who want to weaken Syria. I think we've talked about before on the show how uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, said the best thing the U.S. could do for Israel was destabilize Syria. That has been ongoing for several years, unsuccessfully, but this is what the United States continues to do. And this, this recent uh, attack is simply another episode in that long-running saga. And, you know, kind of ironically, the, the U.S. and its allies created the largest humane, the biggest humanitarian disaster on earth in Yemen. They're going to try to um, challenge that in Afghanistan with starvation. But it looks like the biggest one's going to be in Europe this winter. That's going to be bigger than both of them put together a dozen times over. Your thoughts? Yes, it could be. The United States has sanctioned Russia uh, and is, uh, the European countries are either reducing or not buying oil at all from Russia. Uh, the United States is not, uh, uh, is not fairly dealing with Iran and trying to renegotiate JCPOA. And, of course, Iran has plenty of oil. Venezuela, another enemy of the United States, has plenty of oil. So in order to prevent the disaster that you're referring to, the countries of Europe are going to have to get oil from somewhere. If they're not getting it from Russia... There aren't a lot of other places they can that are going to be able to uh, supplement what they're not getting from Russia, Iran being one of them. So Iran right now is in a very good position to negotiate. However, the United States can never be seen as backing down. Uh, it would rather let the people of Europe starve than they ever made a mistake. Is the United States unintentionally forcing its European allies to make a very hard decision as in which way are they going to go when the temperature reaches zero and they have no gas, they're going to turn to Russia. They're going to turn to Nord Stream 2. Vladimir Putin says, I'll turn up Nord Stream 2 since Nord Stream 1 is down. And that could cause some incredible fractures within these uh, European ally relationships. It could definitely. Uh, when the United States pulled out the JCPOA, it forced the European signatory to do so. But this was not a life and death situation for those countries and for the people in those countries. However, the current situation, the situation that's going to occur this winter, uh, may be just that, a life and death situation. And it's unlikely that the leaders of the European countries, much as they kowtow to the United States government in almost everything, are going to allow their people to starve or freeze uh, at the behest of the United States. Or both. Or, or both. Freeze and starve. Exactly. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, Robert, we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Always my pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports Biden's speech is, quote, dangerous escalation, end quote. Most Americans say, according to polls, Republicans and independents overwhelmingly disdain the U.S. president's Philadelphia speech. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the senior editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report, and she's the author of Prejudential, Black America and the President's, Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. So... What are we to take away from the polling? I I always tell my students, when you listen to speeches like these, you you have to pay very close attention because there are usually different messages to different constituencies that are packed into the same speech. When I listened to that speech last week, I I was kind of trying to figure out who is he talking to? Who is his target audience? Uh, your thoughts, Margaret Kimberly. Well, it's interesting you should mention that. I, I think it's Democrats, but I think it's Democrats he already has. He didn't. I, I think when a president gives a speech, they're trying to go beyond their base of support. Instead, Biden attacked people who are not his supporters. I, I think it was a political truism that you attack your opponent, but you don't attack their supporters. But going on and on and on about mega and all the tweets about mega, he's insulting nearly half of the country. Um, Trump did get 70 million votes. Presumably some of these people might be willing to vote for Democrats, but not if you demonize them. But I think it's all a result of um, his own failures. Um, and uh, that he doesn't have any successes to talk about. And so he's left to say the word mega more often than Donald Trump does. Oh, you know, I, and I, I think here's an answer. And it's in you, you've got your article in, that you wrote in Black uh, Gender Report, Biden's MAGA obsession won't help Democrats. And in that, one of the things you say is this, because Joe Biden and the Democrats act on behalf of the oligarchy instead of people, they now risk a midterm election loss. Here's what I think about that, uh, Margaret. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the oligarchy and only the oligarchy. He's talking to his base, like the old George Bush joke, W. Bush joke. And he's talking from the oligarchy because the oligarchy, you know, uh, there's numbers of oligarchies, but the, the faction of the oligarchy that supports him they hate Trump for we could get into any number of reasons, not that Trump is some kind of a great figure. But my point being, this is like the neocons, the oligarchies all screaming like, look at the those all of those unwashed MAGA supporters. Ew, they may touch somebody. They're gross. And they're talking to and from each other. And anyway, it's your thought. Well, I think that's partially correct, but it was a stump speech for the midterms. And so he's presumably trying also, in addition to talking to his people, the ones he told nothing would ever change, he's also talking to the public, one would think. So going on and on and on about democracy, I mean, that's the kind of thing that presidents say. But to tag uh, target uh, almost half the country as being not democratic people, uh, the most successful politicians at least give lip service to appealing to as broad a spectrum of the public as possible. But they have to lift Trump up 
uh, as someone to demonize because they don't have anything to say for themselves. And uh, it'll be, it remains to be seen. The uh, elections are in about uh, seven or eight weeks, and we'll see if this works or not. But I won't be surprised if it does not. A couple of things. One, as a political scientist, and I have been a political advisor at times, even though I can't say it, I've always told the folks I've advised, and I I know this to be true, people vote for things, not against things. Uh, Those people who will tend to look at the negative won't turn out to vote. They'll stay home. That's the first point. So who he was trying to light the fire under with all of that negativity I really don't know. And when I look at those polled uh, by party affiliation, you've got Republicans, Democrats and independents. Sixty two percent of independents considered the speech to be dangerous and divisive. Well, those are the folks that Biden should be targeting since most of the when you look at the extreme ends of the spectrum, the Democrats aren't going to be swayed. The Republicans aren't going to be swayed. So you need to be focusing a message, targeting a message to those in the middle, the independents. And if that was your audience, 62.4% of them considered your speech dangerous and divisive. You're not, you're not hitting your audience, Joe Biden. And that's because he doesn't have anything to talk about. What, you know, a, a midterm at this point in his administration, he should have given a speech saying, and I did this, and I did that, and I got you this, and I got you that. What did he get? We got a stimulus, which ended. Build Back Better never happened. Um, uh, uh, student loan debt relief, I mean, it's, it's it's insulting to even call it that. You might have gotten 20 grand, and a lot more people got just 10 grand, and he's at pains to say this will never happen again. No increase in the minimum wage, no more child tax credit, none of the things that people are depending on to make their lives better. But there's plenty of money for Ukraine. Is it 50 billion now? I don't know where. 67 billions of dollars. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I was way off. Oh, but what's what's 17 billion amongst friends, Margaret? Go go ahead. So having said all of that, he doesn't have anything to talk about. So they've got to come up with something in this speech. I mean, the 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 image of, you know, is bright red. I was like, it doesn't have anybody to say, could you change the lighting for the president, please? But it looked like, you know, I joked, looked like Satan in hell screaming <laughs> at us. It was a, and the Marines using the Marines in a civilian venue, which I uh, look askance at, and many other people do too. So, from the stagecraft or the bad stagecraft to the content, or rather the lack of content, to um, uh, pissing off half the country, I would have to say it's a failure. And the Democrats are generally not known for getting their people out in uh, midterm elections. Uh, anyway, so mm-hmm. the only way to get people fired up is to raise the specter of Trump. You know, when I look at this, when I looked at that picture, the background, that kind of dystopian 1984-esque kind of picture, I thought of Nina Jankowitz. That's the first thing that popped into my mind, the disinformation board. And when I hear someone saying, there may be people I don't, dis- I don't agree with on pol- policy, but when I see people making these kinds of over-the-top statements, you have to start thinking when somebody says, yeah, that Garland Nixon's bad news. He's a threat to our democracy. I think to myself— you're the president, 
And if you see a threat to democracy, that would imply that you have an obligation to address that threat. You, I mean, the people who, I don't agree with Trump, but I agree with the Constitution and the people have a right to vote for anybody they want. And if the Democrats were offering anything, Trump would be easy to beat. But you would have, if I were a MAGA person, I, would, I wouldn't be paranoid thinking, I think this guy's out to throw me in uh, Guantanamo Bay, Margaret. Yes, he did. He 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 targeted millions of people. Trump got 10 million more votes in 2020 than he got in 2016, lest we forget. And uh, so we're talking about millions of people who, whatever they may be like, they don't think of themselves as bad people. Um, some of them may be willing to switch sides in an election if uh, they felt there was anything beneficial to them, but they certainly aren't going to uh, uh, make any changes when uh, he goes on and on about uh, mega or threat to democracy and um, and they're horrible people and we've got to stop them. It's I've never seen such a thing in my life where a president um, uh, demonized so many ordinary people. It's unheard of. But what is also unheard of is that, you know, Joe Biden was, I believe, lucky to win. I think uh, he has to thank COVID, frankly, for his victory over Trump. And uh, the promises he made, the lies that he told, that he now can't explain away. So this is what he's left with. Um, telling half the country to hate the other half, actually turning off some of the people even who voted for him, who are looking, um, uh, giving him side eye, that this is uh, seen as some kind of a campaign appeal. So uh, I'm looking forward to November to seeing um, uh, if this worked at all. If this had worked at all. So at the end of the day, where do we find our as you look towards the midterms what do you see well it's hard to say it seems like there's uh it seemed that the uh, republicans were signaling they thought they might lose the senate but that's not clear the house is up for grabs lest we forget the democrats lost seats in the house uh in uh 2020 they have um uh, they barely have a majority i wouldn't be surprised if they uh lost the house but the other question is, if they win, if uh, they get control of the House and the Senate, will it mean anything to the people? Will this be a new effort to do some of the things that he hasn't done? I mean, they're trying to use abortion when, frankly, it's the Democrats' fault that uh, uh, Roe v. Wade failed, but their failures with the judiciary, their failures in losing these state houses. Uh, and so they're using this to whip people up into a frenzy, but I'm not convinced that they will do anything about it, even if they have the votes. So that's the other question. Are they going to win? And even if they do win, what would it mean, if anything? Uh, again, and, and uh, Margaret, in your in your article, Biden's MAGA exet, uh, obsession won't help the Democrats. Everybody can find that at BlackAgendaReport.com. One of the things you say is they would think twice about joining in the beatdown if they feared the voters, uh, we got about two minutes. Your thoughts on that? Right. Well, they don't fear the voters because um, uh, people either get disgusted and stop uh, participating or they're so uh, easily conned, so easily indoctrinated that they they follow these horrible policies because the, the bogeyman of uh, uh, Trump might come back. So um, 
I don't think it's um, going to help um, help them uh, um, going to help them at all. And I don't see, unfortunately, I do not see voters being energized to be more active uh, and to do much beyond continuing to vote and thinking in this binary way uh, that there you only have two options to vote for this one or to vote for that one, and not for an uh, an option of being active, really active and making demands, even of a party that you intend to vote for. As we've been saying on the show for quite a while, particularly right after the last election, we don't think, and I think I can speak for Garland here, that Biden wanted to control both the Senate and the House because by doing so, he then had no foil. And if, if the Republicans had taken one of the two, he then would have been able to say, see, here's why I can't give you what I promised is because these other folks in the House or these other folks in the Senate are getting in the way. But what this has shown to me, you asked the question, well, what are they going to do if they if they retain both the Senate and the House? I think we're going to get more of the same because they're not they if they weren't trying to deliver now, they damn sure ain't going to try to deliver later. How about this? If the Republicans, if the Republicans win, Biden can then execute his real strategy exactly. and blame it on the Republicans. You got ten <laughs> seconds, Margaret. Yes, absolutely. That's the the evil genius of uh, <laughs> this system and of this man who's been in politics for decades and knows exactly how the system works. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Chris Hedges has a piece in Consortium News entitled, Stop Pretending U.S. is a Functioning Democracy. Uh, Chris Hedges writes, there are no institutions, including the press, an electoral system, the imperial presidency, the courts, or the penal system that can be defined as democratic. Only the fiction of democracy remains. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Chris Hedges writes, there's a fatal disconnect between a political system that promises democratic equality and freedom while carrying out socioeconomic injustices that result in grotesque income inequality and political stagnation. Dr. Horn, there is a disconnect between what has been and continues to be promised versus what has been and continues to be delivered. In fact, one can posit that the founding documents were never truly democratic to begin with. Your thoughts, Dr. Gerald Horn? Well, obviously, your latter point is accurate. You need look no further than the antiquated Electoral College, which too often has allowed the person who gets the fewest number of votes, popular votes, for the White House to prevail. 
look no further than the 2016 election of one Donald J. Trump, although he received three million fewer votes than his Democratic counterpart. Look no further than the U.S. Senate, which gives two seats to Wyoming, whose population is probably not larger than that of the District of Columbia, which, of course, has no U.S. Senate seats, and gives two Senate seats to California, which has a population uh, reaching 40 million plus. So obviously, Christopher Hedges has a point, but the danger now, I'm afraid to report, per a piece in the New York Times in the last 24 to 48 hours, by their journalist Carl Hulse, H-U-L-S-E, is that the right wing is contemplating a constitutional convention. That is to say, this vaunted and sainted 18th century constitution, which has been defended by so many as the last word in terms of constitutions, the right wing has decided that it's insufficient. So buckle your seatbelts, Because if this constitutional convention takes place, I'm afraid to tell your audience, do not be surprised if there's an overthrow of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, for example. There is growing concern in Republican Party ranks about the constitutional amendment approximately a century ago that gave women the right to vote in light of the Dobbs decision further circumscribing women's reproductive freedom in the United States, which apparently has led to a surge in women registering to vote, particularly against Republicans. See the referendum on the right to choice in Kansas just a few weeks ago. So do not be surprised if there are either either restrictions or overthrowing of women's suffrage. So, I'm afraid to say that our lone national nightmare is far from being over. Dr. Horn, it's interesting you said that because a while back, for several months ago, I was talking about if the if the if the conservatives get enough um, power, they'll have a constitutional convention. But I think you have to look at that through the lens of how that happened. In that, when the Biden administration comes in, they make a bunch of promises, so they know what people want. They know. I know what you want. Boom. I'm promising all of it. But it's wholly neoliberal, neoconservative. So that was just a ruse to get the suckers to vote for him. And then uh, all promises were abandoned. So you have a party. You have the conservatives who have all these terrible things they want to do with the Constitution. But there's a lot of uh, uh, countries that have parties that want to do all kinds of things like that. But then you have a Democratic Party that has completely abandoned the working class and black people forget it, but, you know, that's over. They're thrown right off the bus right the day after um, after the vote. And so you create a dysfunctional dynamic where these kinds of things are almost guaranteed to happen in a dynamic this dysfunctional. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, the only footnote I would add is that uh, I grant agency to the 74, 75 million, mostly Euro-American, significantly working class and middle class who voted for Mr. Trump in 2020. I'm not of the opinion that necessarily uh, they voted for Mr. Trump because they saw Mr. Trump as providing 
more opportunity than the Democrats. For example, if you go back to 1991, when 15, 55% of the Euro-American population in the state of Louisiana voted for a Nazi and a Klansman, David Duke, for governor, I doubt if they cast their vote for David Duke because they saw the Democrats as being neoliberal. I think that we have to give some agency to those who are pushing from below, pushing the country to the right, and that's what makes this idea of the Constitutional Convention all the more dangerous, particularly dangerous, I'm afraid to say, for those who have been in the bullseye ever since this country came together in the 18th century, speaking of the black population, which did not engage in class collaboration when British rule was overthrown in the 18th century to establish the United States, that is to say, they did not stand beside slave owners. And of course, by 1865, the billions of dollars in investment in these Negroes was taken by the government without compensation, which has infuriated Dixiecrats to this very day since they lost money on that particular enterprise. And so the situation, I'm afraid to say, is, is ever more dire. And so if folks are looking for a way out, uh, I'm giving a major address uh, this coming Sunday uh, proposing that the international community needs to get much more involved in U.S. domestic affairs. Because if the United States, as those on high have told us, is actually tipping towards fascism, this will not just be a danger for the people of the United States, not just for the black people of the United States, it will be a danger for the entire international community. And so, therefore, the international community has a right to get involved in what might uh, befall them. And so I think that's the way out. But unfortunately and sadly, uh, that simple thought apparently has not crossed the minds of many of our leaders and many of our organizations who are still operating as if the year was 1954. The, the collective self-delusion masks what America has become, a nation where the citizenry has been stripped of economic and political power and where brutal militarism practiced overseas is practiced at home. In classical totalitarian regimes such as Nazi Germany or Stalin Soviet Union, economics was subordinate to politics, but under inverted totalitarianism, the reverse is true. And and let me ask you, Dr. Horn, I think when you inject neoliberalism into that analysis, whether we're looking at Chile or whether we're looking at Argentina or whether we're looking at 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 this at the Soviet Union under Boris Yeltsin and the damage that 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 economics does, that that's exactly where America is and exactly where America is headed. Well, that's a fair point, and I take it from Chris Hedges' comment and yours that you're drawing the connection between the global and the domestic. Mm-hmm. That is to say that it is not tenable for the United States to support a fascist coup in Chile on September 11, 1973, and help to destabilize a left-leaning government in Afghanistan in order to install religious zealots, as happened in the aftermath of the Soviet intervention in in Kabul in 1979. I could go on with this litany, but at a certain point, what happens abroad inevitably comes back home. And that, of course, brings us to the crisis of the day, which is to say the crisis in Central and Eastern Europe, whereby you would not know 
if you were just a casual observer, if the United States and its allies were sanctioning Moscow or sanctioning themselves. But what's even more remarkable with regard to that state of affairs is that the United States has stacked the deck in its favor, and the Europeans, being chumps extraordinaire, have gone along with it. And what I mean is, the United States is not sanctioning the import of Russian oil. Uh, it's sanctioning the import of Russian oil, but it only gets 3%. But it compels the Europeans to sanction the import. The United States is not sanctioning the import of Russian uranium because it gets 15%, and the other supplies are in Southern Africa, and those nations are not considered to be reliable. The Europeans go along with that as well. But it seems to me that the last word may be held by the European populace and if you saw the demonstrations in Prague mm-hmm. just a few days ago, tens of thousands marching against the boneheaded policies of their government, uh, I think that that's just a foretaste of what you will probably see in London, Paris, and Berlin sooner rather than later. And the repercussions inevitably will be coming back across the Atlantic. And that's why, of course, uh, I'm making this address on Sunday that I've already suggested. And Dr. Horn, what we're looking at now is uh, the prices of commodities are up. The Middle Eastern countries, the, the oil countries are making a fortune. The Russians are making a fortune. The U.S. making a whole lot of money off of this. The uh, EU, the at chumps as they are, are getting absolutely cleaned out. But even to put, to, to, to put an asterisk on Chris Hedges' argument that this is not a functioning de- not democracy, for all of the profit that's coming to the U.S., it's only going to the oligarchs. The people, the, everything's still falling for the American people as the wealthy, uh, you know, the oil companies, et cetera, are making a fortune, sell LP, LNG, et cetera, are making so much more money going to, uh, yeah, selling to, to the Europeans, Dr. Horn. And, of course, uh, liquefied natural gas from the United States is 40% more expensive than its counterpart from Russia, minimally. And I'm sure you've covered this, but let me put my two cents on this recent proposal from the U.S. Treasury Department to seek to put a cap on (laughs) Russian energy exports to deprive Russia of revenue. Uh, Point number one, Russia has made clear that those who go down that path should expect not to get any energy from Russia. But in any case, what your alert listeners need to realize is that that proposal is kind of a backdoor to undermine and destabilize OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. That is to say that ever since the 1970s, when you had the so-called oil crisis, the North Atlantic countries have been seeking to take back the opportunities to establish oil prices to their benefit and to the detriment of the Saudis, the Nigerians, the Angolans, the Algerians, etc. And given this uh, proposal to put a cap on Russian energy, in some ways that's saying put a cap on energy generally, but I don't think that that'll fly, and it'll particularly be discussed, I'm sure, in the next few days when President Xi Jinping of China meets with his Russian counterpart in Uzbekistan for the annual meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a direct counterpart to the U.S.-dominated NATO, and then, we are told, flies on to Saudi Arabia, where I'm sure this issue I just outlined will be foremost in discussion. 
For those who want to tune in to the presentation you're going to make on Sunday, uh, how do they do it and where do they do it? Just Google my name, uh, or I should, excuse me, put my name in a search engine, <laughs> an international conference, September 11th, 2022. Uh, my address is 1110 a.m. Central, 1210 Eastern. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Consortium News entitled, The Historic Collapse of Journalism, Accuracy No Longer Matters. Witnessing no longer matters, conformity matters, writes Patrick Lawrence. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Ted, to me, this is a very interesting reflection of what has happened and what is happening to journalism in America. Your thoughts? Well, I agree. Um, you know, what's what's going on here is that we're seeing the, the, the meltdown of a an industry that used to have considerable power. And that power derived from uh, its the fact that it was a very profitable industry, and now it's not. And um, the danger to democracy is maybe not exactly the way that it's been portrayed. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, most news in the United States originated, almost all news in the United States originated from print newspapers. And owning a print newspaper was like minting money. I mean, in 1958, New York City, for example, had 26 daily newspapers. Uh, the families that owned even the small ones uh, were, and they usually were families, uh, were extraordinarily wealthy. And that, with that, you know, there were there were some downsides to uh, family ownership of newspapers. Uh, the the parochial political interests of those families was often reflected, not only in the editorial page but also in the news coverage of these papers. Uh, but there were a lot of positives that have been lost. Uh, in the last hundred years or so, we've seen uh, corporate purchasing of papers, consolidation, uh, more, um, you know, treating newspapers more like a, a court, you know, a quarterly uh, stock market business. And, um, and as a result, uh, everything, and of course, obviously, the advent of the internet, um, really uh, has has shrunk newspaper profits and the profits of uh, news conglomerates in general. So um, you could have a certain degree of independence a hundred years ago. Uh, if the owner of a paper um, you know uh, could really was getting pressured by government, like for example, uh, the way that The Washington Post was pressured uh, not to publish the Pentagon papers, um, the the owner of that paper had so much power that he or she could push back if they chose to. Uh, that's just not true anymore because they're so broke that often 
serving as the newspaper's uh, serving as the government's uh, stenographer uh, not only is just sort of a way to make sure they don't get harassed by the government, but it's literally a way to sort of fill uh, content with <laughs> with information that they would otherwise have to pay for by hiring actual journalists to investigate stories. Um, you can sort of see that on the micro level uh, in the relationship between most local papers and their local police departments, where uh, rather than uh, you know uh, view the police as a force to be uh, investigated and not taken at face value, uh, the journalists uh, often just call the cops in order to get their stories. And it fills up space, and it's cheaper, and it's easier, and it's more frictionless. But of course, who is not served are the readers or, of course, the victims of police injustice in that example. In his tagline, uh, uh, Patrick Lawrence says, two things. I'm going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to put two things together. Accuracy no longer matters. Conformity conformity matters. I think I'd put it a little different for this reason. Accuracy is vilified. The person who looks into what happened in Afghanistan, who looks into what's happening in Ukraine, who looks into what's happening right now in Yemen, any of the places where the United States is around the world possibly doing something that some Americans may oppose, would likely oppose, if that is accurately reported, that's it for that person. They're out. They're not working in this, this industry anymore. They're, and, might I add, they're going to be attacked on mainstream news. They're going to be ripped apart. So journalism now not only doesn't value accuracy, but accuracy is um, anathema to everything they believe in. Well, I mean, and to put a finer point on it, I would say independence is really the word is that is what's really under fire and uh, is not allowed anymore. I mean, news. You know, uh, you, the cliche is if your mother says she loves you, check it out. You're not supposed to take um, gov- the government or the military or the police or a corporation or anyone for that matter at face value. When you're a journalist, you're supposed to be a, a skeptic, and uh, you're not supposed. And any kind of official party line is should be anathema to you, but. These days, and it's been, and frankly, this has been a long time coming. This is not a new development. It's just that it's a, it's a, it's a problem that's gotten really, really bad in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, you know, if you question an official narrative, uh, you are literally told that you can't work. I mean, I uh, remember talking to uh, editor at Vox.com and uh, about about doing work for them, and they literally said that if, and this is pretty much a quote that if you don't take the intelligence community at face value when it says something, then you can't work here. Now, I was like incredulous at that. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're telling the intelligence community is literally, they're spooks. They're in the business of, 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 of lying. I mean, lies are part of their, what they're supposed to do is spread misinformation. Um, but why would you, you know, even if it was the Pope, even if it was Jesus himself returned from the dead, uh, why would you take anyone at face value when you're a journalist? But that's the culture now. And it, it's, uh, it's independent thought is, com- you know, is completely stifled. It's just not permitted. Uh, certainly you can't get hired by a major media organization if you're independent minded. And uh, if you do, you will not last long. And if you try to work independently, they will go after you. You talked earlier about the consolidation of newspapers. One of the things that I think 
has gone by the wayside that a lot of people don't really understand and appreciate is the collapse of wire services, that the news-gathering entities have also contracted greatly. So the, the, your access to different sources of information has, uh, has contracted tremendously. And that's a great, re- that is uh, true. And it's also in response to the overall industry. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the, the state of the industry itself, because mm-hmm. wire services pretty much ag- mostly aggregated stories from across their membership. So if the Dallas Morning News had a cool exclusive story, uh, it could end up on the Associated Press wire uh, and then be picked up around the country. Um, you know, that can still happen, but because it's less likely that, say, the Dallas Morning News will end up doing that cool, uh, independently researched article, then the AP is less likely to have it, which means it's less likely to appear in your paper in uh, Canton. So uh, assuming you even still have a paper in Canton. So there's, uh, you know, the wire services exist, but they just don't have as much material to feed off of because of the consolidation. What do you think about uh, the relationship between the changes in media and the rise of new media, the rise of alternative media, you know, looking, I remember when CNN went after Jimmy Dore for the serious stuff, but the reality was he had more views as a YouTuber on his Syria series than CNN actually had. And what do you think about the adversarial position between uh, mainstream media and new media, alternative media, et et cetera, and what that means? Well, I mean, in the long run, it's likely that uh, big media will triumph just because big always beats small. I mean, you know, right. And it's certainly true that there's a massive appetite for these alternative um, sources and uh, you, you you definitely see it. I mean, you know, right now we're talking on an alternative uh, source right now that has been, you know, is obviously being ruthlessly censored in the U.S. and in, in Europe. Um, and, you know, I, I personally made my career mostly in the alt-weeklies, um, many of which are gone now. But the alt-weeklies that really expanded in the 1980s and 1990s did for 20, 30 years provide a very strong counter narrative to corporate media, but then it the it also became uh, uh, con, you know aggregated and uh, turned into chains. For example, the, there was something called uh, the Phoenix New Times chain that bought up a lot of the alt weeklies, got rid of alternative national and international coverage. Um, emphasized local and then basically no political news whatsoever. And, you know, it, and it basically uh, the, the reason for these publications to exist kind of came to an end and a lot of them folded. I mean, there, there were other issues, too, like uh, the Craigslist destroyed their advertising model. But there's yeah, I mean, so I guess the thing is, I worry about like the Jimmy Doors of the world. Uh, whether they will be able to remain uh, fiercely independent uh, uh, as some of them are basically bought up by corporate interests or are just shut down in other ways. One of the people that is discussed in this piece is Thomas Friedman. And it's it's interesting to me that uh, Patrick Lawrence says 
The first thing Friedman did when he inherited the foreign affairs space on the opinion page was to move the column to Washington. No more living among others. The second thing he did was stop listening to others apart from a few friends and acquaintances. That to me is, is I think, accurate, but it, I think it's also very characteristic of one of the big problems is that it was no longer really about reporting from the from the inside out it was very insular and the your, your sources became very very narrow as well as your perspective yeah well thomas friedman is kind of a, a really notorious example of uh, and and it's kind of widely viewed within the profession as as being a total hack um, and every, you know, this was a guy who was instrumental as part of the run-up to war against Iraq, for example, mm-hmm. and has pretty much been on the wrong side of every major foreign policy decision uh, since he began writing. Um, you know, he's kind of a reliably wrong uh, narrator. Um, you know, it's sort of like a film critic who's always wrong. So you read it because you just do the opposite. Um, he, uh, but I think, you know, what's interesting here is it's also the obsession with access. Um, a lot, Friedman embodies this sort of idea that, you know, news comes out of Washington, it comes out of press conferences, it comes out of steak and potato dinners, and he can get it and then feed it to us, the unwashed masses. But in my opinion, um, that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Um, a real journalist is out in the – it views you know, a press conference as a news-free zone where propaganda is being disseminated and is only of interest insofar as that propaganda should be uh, dissected, investigated, um, and, and sort of undermined as much as possible in the service of truth. Um, you know, once you're – hanging out and uh, hobnobbing with wealthy people, and you become a wealthy person yourself, which Friedman is. Friedman lives uh, on the, uh, you know, on the, uh, in a beautiful mansion, one of those houses that you, know, you can only see photographed from a helicopter overhead mm. on a beautiful beach in Maryland. I mean, this guy is worth tens and tens of millions of dollars. Uh, mostly due to speaking fees. Okay. You know, once once you're that rich, you're right. You're, you're you're inside. You're not outside. You're not a journalist. Hey, funny you mentioned Cudlow. You mentioned uh, Friedman as as being wrong, and that just reminded me of Larry Cudlow, who's another one of those guys that was always wrong. Uh, Ted Raw, as always, man, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back anytime. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.